Good morning. Today's scripture is from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. I'll warn you up front. At 10.45 last night, I decided to make this a two-part sermon. Because I had labored for several hours to condense all that was on my heart to share with you. And it was just not happening. So to all of those who are right now thinking, but I'm scheduled to preach in two, three weeks. I'll get with you this week. We'll figure out how we're going to do it. But what we, do, we need to linger here, friends. I think we need to linger. I, I am not, those of you who know me probably won't be surprised, I, I'm not a clothing, fashion, style expert by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I know people who are. There's some in this church who are. Uh, they, ha- they seem to have this intuitive sense for coming up with outfits that look good, that are stylish but not flashy, classy but not backward. In contrast, how many of you guys can identify with me? I, I'm somewhat dependent on online clothing catalogs to tell me what I should be wearing. Um, and my wife to give good advice along the way. Uh, but, but once somebody does the, the hard work of proposing an outfit, and yes, I know that's the word guys are a little leery of using, but get over it, you know what I mean. I actually think I'm somewhat skilled at telling other people whether that looks good on them or not. Okay, now, now fear not, I know I'm not evaluating all of your attire right now, but, but, but let me give you two examples, okay? For example... I can say with confidence, it would not be good for Queen Elizabeth to parade through the streets of London in rags, or for President Zelensky of Ukraine to to do a news conference in a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops. I'm pretty confident in that. Why is the queen always attired in the finest dresses and jewelry? Because of her identity, right? She's royalty. It would be unfitting for her to dress otherwise. Why why is Zelensky always attired in battle fatigues? Because of his identity. He's a wartime leader. It, It would be unfitting for him to sport a Rolex while his countrymen are starving in trenches. Think, think about it. R- rags on the queen or Hawaiian shirts on Zelensky would not change who they are, right? 
Elizabeth would still be the queen. Zelensky would still be the president. What, what they wear doesn't determine their identity, but it does express or deny their identity. In other words, given who they are, certain attire is fitting, certain attire is not. And, and when they put on the right clothing, what happens? It, it, it reinforces, it honors, it displays the glory and dignity of their identity. Being a Christian, a wholehearted follower of Jesus, is no different than that, friends. No different. The moment you turn away from doing life your way, and you turn toward trusting and obeying Jesus, what happens in that moment? In that moment, you receive a new identity as a child of God. A new identity. It's, it's not make-believe or a shell game. It's, it's not like an addition to the back of the house that is you. It's not a mask like Halloween that covers the old you. Listen, in that moment... The old you dies. Gone. It doesn't even exist anymore. It's not like it's just comatose or chilling. It's gone. Through the power of the Spirit, you receive a new spiritual nature. A heart that wants to please the Lord. A heart that is able to please the Lord. And that miracle is so, so drastic, so identity transforming that Jesus says, you know what it's like, John 3? It's like being born again. And the members of the church in Colossae had experienced that miracle. Colossians 2.13, And you, Paul writes, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's a spiritual nature. God made alive. How's that, bud? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. I, I love how Colossians 3 is even more succinct. Look at this. Colossians, you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Or 1 Peter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. What are all those things saying when it comes to our identity? Reminding us that, that turning to Jesus in repentance and faith doesn't improve you, friend. Or fix you. Or add a new well-rounded spiritual module to your cosmopolitan comprehensiveness. It, it implants a new principle of spiritual life within you, such that who you are is fundamentally changed. Now, here's the critical implication of all that. Okay, and the whole point of Colossians 3, and why I wanted to linger a bit this morning. Listen to this. The gospel that establishes our new identity in Christ and make no mistake, it establishes it once and for all. That same gospel both requires and enables a new kind of life in Christ. The gospel that establishes a new identity for you in Christ 
both requires and enables a new kind of life in Christ. In other words, certain attire, attitudes, actions are no longer fitting. They deny who you are in Christ. And and a new kind of attire, a new set of attitudes and actions is entirely fitting because they confirm and express the glory of who we are in Christ. In other words, their, their presence affirms no less than their absence denies the reality of Christ's presence in your life. And I use this illustration of clothing because it's the same illustration Paul uses in verse 12. Look there. Given who you are, Christian, there's something you must, what does he say? Put on. Put on. It's it's not a suggestion. It's not a piece of style advice, you know, see if it, see if it kind of works with your vibe. It's not a recommendation. It's not a long-term goal. What is it? It's a present command. Put something on Colossians or more literally clothe yourselves because the pastor says so because your parents want you to. Because it's what the white patriarchy of old and all their cultural narrow-mindedness decided is good. No. Put it on because of who you are, Christian. You know who you are? You're chosen, holy, and beloved. That's who you are. What do those three adjectives mean? Just think about him for a moment. First, you're a chosen one. Each one of these is its own sermon. (laughs) From eternity past, before you were even born, or done anything good or bad, God Almighty determined to break into your hopeless life and draw you to himself. Did you deserve that? No. No? Our sin and rebellion, we all deserve the exact opposite. And yet in the greatness of his mercy, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have received the greatest honor that a man or woman on earth could ever get. And it's not a Nobel Prize. The greatest honor is to be numbered among the redeemed people of God doesn't get any better than that. You are immeasurably important to God, Christian, not because something within you is intrinsically lovely, but because your God has sovereignly determined to make you lovely for the sake of your eternal joy, his eternal glory. You're chosen. Second, you're holy. But Paul isn't speaking here of a a progressive work of of becoming more like Jesus over the course of your life. He's he's talking about a a radical change that happens at the very beginning of the Christian life. The very beginning. We we become holy, brothers and sisters, in, in the sense that we're set apart from the world as members of God's kingdom, to to pursue his priorities and his purposes. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Did Israel have a lot of issues when God said that to them? Absolutely. 
But that didn't change the fact that they had been what? Set apart. Holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The, the finest china in Buckingham Palace is not used as a chamber pot. And the vessels in the temple in the Old Testament, Israel didn't use them for weekend barbecues. <laughs> Why not? Because they were holy. They were set apart. They were, they were created and reserved for a particular aim. So are you, brothers and sisters. Holy. Finally, we, we are beloved. If you are you Christian, you're beloved. Your Father in heaven delights in you with an exceedingly great delight. He's eternally for you and with you, watching over you. He doesn't tolerate you or put up with you. He rejoices in you. You're a trophy of grace. He has united you to his very own son, Jesus, such that the love the Father has for the Son is the love he has for you. And as the Father's love for the Son can no more waver or change or go away or decrease ever so slowly, nor will his love for you. It's a love that pursues you, delights to transform you in the very areas of life where you feel most unlovely. It's a faithful love, a laying down his life while we were still his enemies kind of love. A sacrificial love, a love that, that draws us out of the, the prison of our self-infatuation to see Jesus as spectacularly glorious. Reordering all our other loves in the process. So if you're a member of the body of Christ, and by the way, that's not a decision we get to make independently. That's why church membership matters. That must be affirmed by God's people. If you're a member of the body of Christ, who are you? What, what does the word of God say about your identity? You're chosen, you're holy, you're beloved. That, that doesn't, as Caleb said last week, that doesn't erase other aspects of your identity like your race or your gender or the family you're a part of, but those distinctions are secondary to this. <laughs> You're chosen, you're holy, you're, you're beloved because of who you are in Christ. Who you are, your, your fundamental identity comes from him and what he says about you. Not from you or what the world sees or says when they see you. Remember that. Uh, unlike the world, a Christian knows that their identity is not something we, we forge for ourselves by climbing a ladder of self-achievement. You know where that leads? Two outcomes, self-righteousness or depression. Nor is our identity something we discover by, by exploring the morass, and can we be honest, it is a morass, a swamp 
of ever-changing feelings and desires within us. You know where that leads? To either self-centeredness or total instability. Identity in Christ is a sturdy, objective gift. You can lean the weight of your life on it because it's who you are. It comes from outside of yourself and perfectly aligns with who God created you to be. Chosen, holy, beloved. So, now you see why we have to linger. (laughs) So, what does that new self, new identity, look like in action? That's the real question, right? What, What sorts of attitudes and actions are fitting with that identity? Well, Paul immediately launches the rest of verse 12 through 17 in a long list of Christian virtues. And we're going to focus on just verses 12 and 13 for the remainder of today and 14 and 17 next Sunday. But instead of repeating a couple things every time we work through the list with every virtue, I, I want to make three things very clear up front that applies to the entire list. Okay? So, listen carefully. First, every one of these virtues is rooted in the character of God. Hear that. Okay? They, they are what God requires of us because they are how God relates to us. And he created us to bear his image, to, to display his glory, and he redeems us to restore the image of that glory. Okay, second, every one of these virtues, the, the pinnacle of them, the, the weight of them, where, where they're most clearly and gloriously seen and displayed is not in your life, but in Jesus Christ. If you want to see the greatest compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forbearance of forgiveness, don't look to Mother Teresa. Okay, look to Christ and him crucified because Jesus is the perfect man. As we sing in that hymn, he, he is the true and better Adam. He lived the virtuous life that we're supposed to live. Not, listen, so we can just throw the pursuit of virtue to the wind. Ah, Jesus did it all. Now I don't have to. Awesome. Sign me up for Christianity. No, 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 no. He did it so that we might be free to follow him in becoming who he has made us to gloriously be. Third, it's true of any one of these virtues. Trying to practice them. You trying to practice them, friend will be an exercise in utter futility if you do not have that principle of new spiritual life within you. It won't work. It'll never work. You you might be able to control your actions, one, two, three, be kind. One, two, three, be kind. Right? Like, for a little bit, but, but that fruit won't last. It won't run deep. And it won't please the Lord. That's the biggest problem, right? Why? Because it's an arrogant work of self-improvement instead of a, a humble exercise in Godward dependence. So, so if you consistently find, as we work through these this Sunday and next, all these virtues, that this... It just feels impossible. 
be honest? Well, then soberly consider, friend, have you received a new spiritual identity? That, that, that's a sobering question, but, but it's not a, a bad question. To the contrary, it's an exceedingly important question because Jesus stands ready and willing to change you from the inside out. Don't confuse the presence of the fruit, all these virtues, with the presence of a new root, which is new life in Christ, a new spiritual nature, a new principle, a new heart that that wants to please the Lord and is able to please the Lord. You don't have that root. All of this fruit is just futile. It'll never work. So as we talk about the fruit, pay careful attention next two weeks to all the connections Paul's going to make back to the root. So let's work through the list, just the first part, that we might be convicted and compelled to, to clothe ourselves with Christ, okay? To put on attitudes and actions that, that display our true identity as the people of God. Here's the first one. We're going to do these in pairs. First, put on compassion and kindness. Put on compassion and kindness. Paul is not talking here about being nice or friendly, Hear that? The literal expression, compassionate hearts, is bowels or guts of compassion. Okay, what's that shout? Don't get grossed out. It it means it's an inward attitude, right? A posture of heart that that sympathizes with others' troubles and sorrows. A, A compassionate heart is not emotionally distant. It's emotionally engaged. A compassionate heart wells up in tender concern for the spiritual and physical well-being of other people. And and in so doing, what what does it do? It reflects the emotional life of our Lord. Think about this. Jesus wasn't a mushy guy. He he wasn't a, what do I mean by that? He, He didn't just go around constantly crying, trudging through the brokenness of our world, wailing, but nor was he cold or indifferent or, or stoic. He, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He sympathizes with us because he was tempted in every way yet without sin. And, and when he encountered suffering in the lives of people around him, his, his go-to response, you read through all the Gospels, was not, serves you right. Or just trust God. He listened. He touched. He stopped. He he knew better than anyone else around him all the ways the person in front of him fell short. Right? But his message wasn't, okay, I'm here, shape up. No, moved with compassion, he, he pointed them to the God who saves. And he carried their sorrows. And in so doing, Jesus shows us what it means to be truly human, friend. Kindness is the overflow of that compassionate heart. Okay, it means speaking and acting in ways that, that build up the people around you, especially the people closest to you. So kindness means the question we have to ask in every conversation is not, 
what would I like to say? (laughs) Or what would I like to get off my chest? Okay, but rather, what does God want me to say? How can I breathe grace to this person who's in front of me? That's kindness. That, That may mean speaking biblical truth that isn't easy for that person to hear. Okay, the test of kindness is not in the eye of the beholder. The test is whether your words and actions line up with the character of God, revealed in his word. But, to all you, I'm a true speaker out there, you're not speaking with kindness if your words are not the overflow of a compassionate heart. And if you're not speaking with kindness, you're not even speaking the truth. Compassion and kindness reflect the very sort of care that we experience from Jesus and and all that those who follow him must embrace. It's not a personality thing. It's a new life in Jesus thing. Compassion and kindness, it's, it's the choice fruit of what? Tasting and seeing the compassion and kindness of Jesus for us in the gospel. Put on compassion and kindness. Here's the second pair. Put on humility and meekness. Humility and meekness. A humble person, definition, is simply a man or woman who agrees with God's assessment of themselves. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, that I am not great or mighty or worthy of praise. And you aren't either, right? We are what? Weak, dependent, recipients of God's mercy. And in that respect, the most powerful politician is no different than the poorest day laborer. That's what it means to be human. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? Good question. What do you have that you did not receive? A, a proud man or woman surveys the landscape of their life and pats themselves on the back, think, thinking, Lord, thank you that I am not like, i.e. better than other men. Okay, a humble man or woman surveys the landscape of their life and, and trembles before the God from whom all blessings flow. And Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. So so consider, Christian, the whole reason you have new life in Christ is because the very God who had every right was willing to lay down those rights. Refused to insist on those rights. Jesus made himself nothing. He he took on human flesh. He he assumed the role of a servant so you could be healed. He put your needs above his own to the point of death. He didn't defend his reputation at all costs. He was humble. He trusted the Father to vindicate him in the right way at the right time. Have the same mind, brothers and sisters. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I've taught this verse to my boys, and we have hand motions and funny voices that go with it, but that would be a distraction right now. 
But it's that important. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's humility. And that fruit comes from two roots, okay? What, what two roots produce the plant of humility? First, a heart that perceives the glory of the creator as infinitely greater than the glory of the creature. The creator-creature distinction. Okay, and second, what's the second root? A heart that never gets over, that, that never moves past the wonder that the creator, the glorious creator, would lay down his life for us. That those are the roots that produce humility. And in similar fashion, meekness describes an attitude of, of gentleness or consideration toward other people. A meek man or woman carefully avoids relating to other people in, in ways that are harsh or brash or insensitive. When a meek person is attacked, or how about this, unjustly criticized. Ever felt that? What do they do? Well, a meek person doesn't bristle. <laughs> no, why not? Because a meek man or woman isn't impressed with a sense of their own self-importance. That doesn't mean a meek person is a timid pushover. They simply know true strength is never found in getting angry over injustice. But in remembering the people who trample you are ultimately contending with the Lord. They don't take everything personally. Because it's their personality and they're just one of those quiet, gentle grandfathers. No. No. They don't take everything personally because God is at the center of their view of the world. And a meek man or woman knows he is the one who is truly important. It's not me. Meekness looks like Moses in Numbers 12, who, who responded. Stunning example. Numbers 12. To Israel grumbling about him. I mean, basically, you're a leadership failure. Move over, pal. <laughs> By praying for the nation. <laughs> Why? Because he was meek. Because he feared the Lord more than man. Meekness looks like Jesus praying for those who persecuted him. And both humility and meekness are the choice fruits of coming face to face with Jesus. Seeing, experiencing, tasting, wondering, marveling at his humility and meekness revealed in the gospel. Three, we put on patience and forbearance. Patience and forbearance. What does Paul mean by this? Well, to be patient or, or bearing with one another, as he says in verse 13, is to, is to cheerfully persevere in relationship with other people, even in the face of weakness and sin. There's the kicker, right? <laughs> even in the face of weakness and sin. It means not being quickly offended or, or distancing ourselves from people who hurt us. I want to be very careful here, okay? There are situations where forms of distance are wise and necessary. But, but our 
default response, okay, to, to disliking or feeling hurt by something someone did or said should never be a self-protection that pulls away, but a patience that leans in and is quick to overlook faults. Bearing with one another means, in other words, we're slow to bring correction. Okay, we, we don't assume that just because we see something, we should what? Say something. <laughs> we don't assume that. Why not? Because the Lord could bury us, friends, under a tidal wave of conviction for all the ways right now you and I are not yet like Jesus. You realize that? Like he could back up the truck, a whole line of trucks. But he doesn't do that. Oh, so I have to step in and do that for him. No. (laughs) No. Because he's exceedingly patient. Remember I said there's nothing God requires of us that he doesn't first do in the way he relates to us. He's exceedingly patient. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't blow a gasket or roll his eyes or run for the bushes when we struggle with sin. He stays engaged. He's in it for the long haul. He's he's playing the par five. (laughs) He's faithful to complete the good work he began. He's content to change you from one degree of glory to another. God always wins his battles, but he doesn't fight every battle all at once. Isaiah 65, 2. The Lord speaking, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. I, I keep holding out my hands. I spread out my hands, leaning toward them, staying engaged while they spit on me. Or as Nehemiah observed, when, when he looked back on Israel's history, many years you bore with them, Lord. No joke. And warn them by your spirit through the prophets that the Lord requires us, Christian, to practice the same patience, the same forbearance. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook an offense. I, I love how Ken Sandy, he wrote a book called The Peacemaker, defines what's it mean to overlook an offense? What, what, is, what exactly is this forbearance? Overlooking, he writes, is is not a passive process, so good, in which you simply remain silent for a moment, but file away the offense in your backpack for later use against someone. (laughs) That's right. That's actually a form of denial that can easily lead to bitterness and resentment that will eventually explode in anger. Instead, overlooking is an active process that's inspired by God's mercy through the gospel. To to truly overlook an offense means to deliberately decide to not talk about it, dwell on it, or let it grow into pent-up bitterness. Lord, help us to do that. (laughs) 
Can you relate to that struggle? Yeah. And as I read that, we think about this biblical call to overlook, to forbear. Friends, remember this. The world around us is losing ground so fast when it comes to this virtue. So fast. Victimhood is the new morality, you know? If I'm hurt, if I feel hurt, I'm in the right. Someone has to pay, and I, I will do whatever I have to do, especially online, to make sure they pay. What a far cry from the spirit of Romans twelve nineteen. Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And so that means that, that if you're a Christian, your first response in conflict, when you feel hurt or offended, Right? Because we're, we're, we're eager to say, oh yeah, I love overlooking stuff. I just overlook everything that doesn't hurt or offend me. Mm. Well, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> when you feel hurt or offended, our first response in conflict should always be this. Lord, is this something you want me to overlook? To stop and ask that. To stop and pray that. That's not a sign of weakness. It's an expression of Christian maturity. Okay, it's, it's the fruit of a a man or woman who knows that it's God's patience, God's forbearance, Romans 2, 4, that leads you and me to repentance again and again and again. I'll give you an example of this, okay? And this does not reflect well on me. So this is the kind of example I don't mind sharing. Early in our marriage, it's okay. (laughs) You're going to come out looking a lot better than me, so just enjoy Early in our marriage, I thought it was my solemn duty as a husband to call my wife out for anything in her life that I didn't think was pleasing to the Lord. I mean, I vowed to do that, right? You can imagine how well that went. Um, She was gracious. She forbeared with me. And the Lord used a faithful pastor friend to humble my proud heart about a year into our marriage. And, and guess what has happened since then? I was thinking about this. We've been married 16 years. Over the years, I've noticed that most of the ways my wife has grown, she started out as a godly wife. She is an exceedingly godly wife. And most of the ways she has grown are not because of my intervention. They're, they are the result of the Lord faithfully completing the good work he began in her. I started out thinking what the Lord wanted from me and what my wife needed the most from me was quick, truth-speaking correction. I'm learning that what the Lord wants from me, what my wife needs from me most is patient prayer. But what if an offense cannot be overlooked? That's a thing. (laughs) What what if someone else's actions have, have created a wall? You know what it feels like in your heart between you and them that that just isn't going away quickly. What, What are we to do then? Ah, well then, 
We get to call in an airstrike. <laughs> no. No. Point four. Put on forgiveness. Clothe yourself, Christian. Put on. Adorn yourself. Wrap yourself in all your conversations and attitudes of heart and relationship with forgiveness. Practicing forgiveness toward people who offend us. We'll end with this point is probably the most distinctive mark of a genuine Christian. Why do I say that? Because it's how we demonstrate, how we, how we prove, how you show or out, whether you want to show or out it or not, whether you've actually come face to face with the reality of your need for God's forgiveness. Has that actually happened or is that just something you believe in a statement of faith somewhere? Verse 13 And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. To to forgive someone, let's define this, is to bear the cost of their harmful actions yourself or ourselves instead of exacting a penalty from that person or inflicting suffering on them in response. So when we forgive, we release their relational debt to us instead of holding on to it and adding interest payments to it and making them pay. Forgiveness gets to the heart of the gospel. Why? Because through his death on the cross, God himself bore our sin, the cost of our sin, instead of making us pay. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Or Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does the Lord remove our transgressions from us. Praise God he's that kind of father. And if you're willing to turn and ask, friend, God will forgive you immediately, and completely, and permanently. And check this out. The foundation of his forgiveness isn't the perfection of your apology. Or whether you remembered to include every last detail of the wrong you have done. The foundation of his forgiveness is the death Jesus Christ died in your place for your sin. That's the foundation. Praise God it's not a work of merit we earn. We couldn't. It's a gracious gift we receive. And just like there's no no limit, there's no boundary to the Lord's forgiveness, there must be no limit to ours. Matthew 18, verse 21. Another moment where Peter says what I'm thinking. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Let's go big. As many as seven times? (laughs) Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, Peter. Again and again and again and again. But what if they never ask for it? You ever had that happen? There's that wall, hurt, fence, tried to overlook, don't think I can but they're not asking. Well, then we have to remember the distinction between an attitude of forgiveness and a transaction of forgiveness. 
What do I mean by that? An attitude of forgiveness follows Jesus' example in Luke 23. When he responded to those who crucified him by praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. An attitude of forgiveness is is a posture of heart that's eager and ready to forgive, leaning forward, full of mercy, a heart that rejects bitterness, even in the weight, a heart that refuses to, to hold their sin against them and genuinely longs for that relationship to be restored. That's the attitude of forgiveness. Sometimes we even have to wait till the day Jesus makes all things new for that relationship to be restored. But that attitude, leaning forward, eager to show mercy, is the opposite of a pay-what-you-owe spirit. Or, 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 the, or even the, the pay-what-you-owe that, I won't lash out at you, but I will just carefully, ever so subtly, distance myself from you. And maybe that'll get your attention. <laughs> An attitude of forgiveness necessarily precedes the transaction. So what's the transaction? Well, it's what happens in Acts 2 when Jesus' prayer got answered, okay? Those who crucified the Lord, what happens? They're convicted of their sin, they repent, and they receive the gift of God's forgiveness. Up to that point, the Lord was what? Ready, willing, eager, leaning forward, merciful, but they had yet to ask. And so they had yet to receive. Here's why I make this point. Maintaining the attitude while you are waiting for the transaction, this is so important, Christian, is what will keep somebody else's unrepentance from robbing you of the joy of forgiveness. It's critical. The transaction may have to wait. You 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 have no control over that right? But we can embrace, you can embrace the attitude right now, today. And and indeed we must, you you must refuse. If you call yourself a Christian, you must refuse to retaliate against them and punish them, even as you're waiting for them to get how much they hurt you or sinned against you. But you know, the objection arises to all that, What if what they have done really hurts? Like really hurts. And what if I don't think they deserve even the attitude of forgiveness? Let alone the transaction. Friend, if that's you, I simply ask, as I ask myself, do you think you deserve it? Do you? Is that why God forgave you? Because you deserved it? No. It's because he does not treat us according to our sins. Repay us according to our iniquities. That the cross of Christ declares, hear this, that no other human being will ever be more indebted to you than you are to God. Remember that. Their sin against you, no matter how great, how horrific, how violent, always pales in comparison to your sin against God. 
Because the greatness of the sin is determined by the greatness of the one we sin against. So think of it this way. Here's the good news in this struggle, and it is a struggle. The forgiveness that Jesus lavishes on us in the gospel will forever exceed, overwhelm, superabundant, immeasurably more than the forgiveness he requires from us. Isn't that good news? The, the forgiveness God lavishes upon you in Christ will always be infinitely greater than whatever forgiveness he requires from you in Christ. And here's, here's some more good news. Where forgiving someone feels impossible, the Lord is eager and faithful to empower you. How? By kicking you in the pants and saying, get with the program. No, by reminding you, opening your eyes to see, oh my goodness, I've totally forgotten how much I've been forgiven. He's willing and able, friends. Follow the disciples, Luke 17 at 15, after this teaching, they simply responded to the Lord this way. They just said, Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> I love that, right? He's just, this is what forgiveness means. This is what forgiveness requires. No limit, permanently, all the time, 77 times 7. <gasps> increase my faith, <laughs> you know? We can pray that together. We'll pause here. I'm glad we're lingering. If, if you grew up thinking Christianity is just a list of don'ts, joy killing, I'll go Baptist for a second. <laughs> Don't drink, dance, smoke, or associate with those who do, <laughs> right? If you think that's what Christianity is, you don't understand Christianity at all. Here's what Christianity is all about. It's about receiving a new identity in Christ through the gospel. That's what it's about. And that, that gospel-shaped identity both requires and enables a new kind of life in Christ. Yes, there are vices to put to death, but, but there is so much more to following Jesus than just not doing things. Living out your identity is bigger than that. It means running hard after the virtues in this list, not so that people look at you, see this in your life, and say, man, what, a, what an incredible, great, inspiring person. I'd like to drink what you're drinking. No, but so when they look at your life and they see the transformation the Spirit has worked in you, they would step back and say, what a Savior. What a Savior. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us in Christ, chosen and holy and beloved. Keep our sense of self rooted in our actual identity this week, Lord. And empower us by your grace, even as we ask you to do that through this song, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to clothe ourselves with fitting attire that, that honors, that reveals, that celebrates and declares the glory and dignity of the identity you have given us. Make us your kind of people, for that is where we find our greatest joy. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen.